Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee, all the best. Today we will be discussing Peggy Orenstein's Girls and Sex. I consider this book essential reading for anyone who is a girl or has been a girl or loves a girl, but I'm including it in this podcast on patriarchy specifically because it contributes meaningfully to a conversation that we started in the very first episodes. Remember that for millennia, men thought of women's bodies as their possessions, and their reproductive capacity was considered a commodity. Up until about 100 years ago, women were still considered to be owned by their husbands under the laws of coverture, and marital rape was outlawed only in 1993 in all of the states of the United States. And that's a vestige of the belief that a man owned his wife's body, and it was his to do whatever he wanted with it. And then listeners will remember from the historical timeline in 1931, Virginia Woolf said that the one thing women couldn't write about was sex, even though men could write about sex. And in many ways, that's still true today. Then listeners will remember the book Our Bodies, Ourselves, which paved new paths in the 1970s. But we are still figuring out girls and women's bodies and sexuality in the context of always having been overseen and monitored and controlled by men. And I think it's important to remember that historical context as we consider this book as it relates to patriarchy. Also, I have to throw in, obviously, given the title of the book, this episode is about sex. So please be advised of the subject matter, which we are on purpose going to discuss very openly. And I'm very, very excited to discuss this book with my reading partner today, Natasha Helfer. Thank you so much for being here, Natasha. I am so honored. I just love being on this show. I love the title. I love you. I'm super excited. So excited to have you here. Um, Natasha and I met, I don't know if you remember this, Natasha, but it was in Northern California a few years ago at a lunch for kind of a group of progressive Mormons. And I was seated next to Carolyn Pearson on one side. She's a hero of mine. And so I was in heaven because whenever I turned to my left, I got to talk with Carolyn Pearson. And whenever I turned to my right, you, Natasha, were talking with my husband, Eric, about sex shame and conservative religions. And that's something that we think and talk about a lot. So I felt super torn between like, ah, oh, how can I want to have two conversations <laughs> at once? I knew who you were coming into that lunch. I recognized you. I already admired you so much. I'd heard you speak on sexuality on several, several different podcast episodes. I'm just was a huge fan of you and your work, and I still am. So I just cannot wait to have this conversation and hear what you have to say about the book. So thanks again for being here. And before we jump in, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about who you are personally, kind of where you come from and what makes you who you are. Sure. That's, that's no small. <laughs> yeah. In two minutes. And, and, and I do remember um, you at that lunch, by the mm. way. So there you go. Mm. All right. So yeah, so professionally, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also an ASEC certified sex therapist. And uh, I've been practicing for over 20 years, almost 25 years now, and primarily in the Bible Belt, uh, in the Midwest, and also in what we call the Book of Mormon Belt. (laughs) So uh, so a lot of conservative religion in both of those areas, and a lot of work in regards to the theme of sexuality. 
In fact, it was working within those communities in general that led me to my interest in sex therapy because I could see that there were a lot of different issues and a lot of different beliefs and ideas and standards and values that are highly influenced by uh, culture and religion, both of which are also very highly influenced by patriarchal systems. So, um, so that was a, a very big interest of mine, and, and that was um, kind of professional path I took and, and taking still. As far as personally, I've um, kind of been all over the place. I grew up as a military brat, so moved quite a bit before I graduated from high school. Um, my parents are kind of an interesting duo. My dad was uh, a guy from New York, and my mother was from Buenos Aires, Argentina. And my dad, kind of in his own, well, I don't know, young adult, lost phase, took a one-way ticket to Chile and did a huge hitchhiking kind of around the bend of South America and ended up in Buenos Aires, and that's where he met my mom, and they connected for a few months, and then he traveled back to the States, and they kept in touch, and she came to visit him, and voila, they stayed together. <laughs> so both of them had a lot of interesting kind of family background themselves, um, even religiously speaking. My mother was kind of torn between a Catholic and a Lutheran family on her side. Um, my dad had Jewish heritage, that had been kind of abandoned as far as orthodox um, praxy, orthopraxy, I guess. And also a mother who was not super religious, uh, was interested in going to Quaker meetings at times, et cetera. So both of them had a lot of interest in meaning of life and ideas about spirituality and religion. And if, you know, about, well, I don't know, nine years after they were married or so, I was about five years old, they converted to Mormonism. They were living in Spain at the time. So that was an interesting kind of unique entry into that religion that's not very common <laughs> as far yeah. as that goes. And so then from a very early age, I was influenced by, you know, I think heavily influenced by my mother in, in regards to kind of her upbringings in Latin America around sexuality, which was fairly rigid and closed-minded, even though she wasn't. So it was kind of, I could, she was conflicted in a lot of ideas around sexuality. And then also a large influence of my, of my religion in regards to how I was supposed to conduct myself and think about myself as a sexual being. So that led to a lot of different experiences. Personally, I was a curious child and teenager in regards to my sexuality. I also had some sexual abuse trauma history. So that was all, you know, kind of a complicated uh, thing to navigate. I'm sure when I was in my younger brain years, <laughs> trying to make sense of a lot of those things. But I was one that, you know, loved to, you know, rock myself to sleep by masturbating or being very interested in boys and had a lot of crushes and um, liked making out quite a bit in my teenage years. <laughs> like, considered myself a kissing slut. You know? 
<laughs> I guess that was the only kind of slut I could be if I was going to be Mormon. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> um, but I enjoyed it and also felt some shame about it. And then mm-hmm. I became sexually active fairly young. I was almost 16, but still 15 with my high school boyfriend. And a lot of conflicted feelings about that because from a pleasure and consent and relationship perspective, looking back, it was great. It was a great relationship. Uh, But again, from a values perspective and how people, um, not even just in my religion, but in public education and um, just in general, you know, all the fear and um, scary aspects of sexuality was pretty much all that was being presented. And, and, you know, it seemed like this big no-no that we shouldn't be doing. And uh, so a lot of conflicted feelings there. And then I went on to Brigham Young University where several years later with a second boyfriend, um, which I was also sexual with, I went through the disciplinary process at that school because you're supposed to confess your sins. And so I did. And in that I had broken the honor code of keeping myself chaste within that university system. So believe it or not, in an accredited United States university, I was kicked out midterm of that university because I had been sexually active with, you know, very, again, a very devoted, committed relationship that I was in at the time. So, and I didn't think anything of it at the time. I thought I deserved it. I thought that was my lot. You know, I thought that was um, a correct punishment. But of course, now looking back on that, I see how inappropriate that overlay of academia with my personal religious uh, values and standards was, um, in my opinion, because Mm -hmm. it's an accredited university, you know, which... um, if it wasn't accredited, then I guess, you know, universities have the right to do whatever they, they do. But I, I do think that there is a lot of interesting intersection between patriarchy, religion, sexuality, uh, and legality in this country under the umbrella of religious freedom. Mm. And so there's a lot of issues that really have an impact, I think, on people's educational rights in this perspective because religion has the right to, in their freedom process, <laughs> mm-hmm. treat people certain ways and do, you know, have certain disciplinary procedures, ecclesiastical procedures that really have nothing to do with um, kind of a, a larger educational or legal or political system. Or well, shouldn't, in my, no, in my view. No, shouldn't, yeah. So I went through that and um, got married went back to BYU, you know, finished at BYU after my repentance process, which took about a year. Uh, I went to a local college, like um, community college in the meantime, and then transferred those credits over back to BYU, got my degree there in psychology, um, got married, got my master's degree in marriage and family therapy after that, and started life, you know, with a Mormon man who, you know, I think those themes of my prior sexual experience, along with, I think, all of the messages that I had internalized about myself impacted my marriage, you know, impacted my sexuality, impacted my sense of self. Um, And again, at the time, not in ways that I was super aware of, right? It's, It's in looking back now that I can see 
the journey, of course, much clearer as far as how my younger, the younger version of myself was affected, you know, by so many of these, of these aspects. Um, I ended up having four children. Um, and it's interesting that just throughout my career working with primarily, again, religiously conservative folks, I had to really take a hard look at my own religion, my own belief system, you know, biases that I had, um, ideas around sexuality that I had that came from religious instruction, but didn't necessarily match what I was learning in social science and in sexual science. And so there was a lot of conflict and internal conflict and cognitive dissonance that I was facing on a regular basis as I started understanding the importance, for example, of gay rights, you know, even though I came from a religion that was telling me that being gay was a sin and that we shouldn't support things like gay marriage. And, and in fact, um, my religion in particular was quite, quite aggressive about those things politically, taking political stances and uh, donating monies to um, causes that would lobby against those kinds of rights in certain states, California and Hawaii in particular. And so that was very difficult. And then, of course, seeing um, so many adolescents over the years, you know, coming in with so much guilt around things, simple things like masturbation, again, consensual, maybe developmental sexual exploration with a, with a boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, exploratory behavior in regards to um, sexual orientation and gender identity issues, all things that were very frowned upon by their religious homes and faith communities. And I could see the mental anguish and the effects that would have on depression and anxiety and um, relational skills and um, things that were not showing me good fruit, if we, if we can say it that way. So, uh, so I started advocating publicly uh, around some of these topics, including, you know, in my, in my profession over the last 25 years, another big thing that has happened is the advent of internet, the internet, and with that internet pornography and sexually explicit materials. And so we've, we've been in the midst of a, of a large um, social experiment <laughs> in regards to how, how that has come to be and what, what kinds of themes there are in that whole um, industry. I mean, you know, humans have a tendency to sexualize any new technology that, that, have, that comes across. So it's not surprising that that happened with the internet. But of course, in my office, then I started seeing a lot of distress around this, whether it was parents or spouses or individuals themselves wondering, you know, what's healthy, what isn't healthy, what's okay, what isn't okay, what, where do our values lie in this? And again, in most religiously conservative communities, there's very little allotment for any type of sexual material, whether it's pornography or literature, music, or experience that doesn't fall under fairly strict boundaries. So I started taking stances um, around pornography that are more aligned with sexual health versus pathologizing things that go against your religion. <laughs> so there's a difference, right, between being sick or, you know, acting in ways that go against your religious values. And so trying to advocate 
in ways that were more sexually healthy. So those three things in particular, my advocacy for gay rights, my advocacy for normalizing sexual behavior such as masturbation and some experimentation, you know, as teens and, sex- and young adults prior to marriage and also sexual health around uh, fantasy and sexually explicit materials started getting me uh, into hot waters with my religious community and my leaders, my patriarchal leaders, my ecclesiastical leaders in particular, uh, which culminated just this last year in my excommunication from the Mormon church, uh, which got quite a bit of national attention um, just in, in April, in April of this year. So just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. which was a very patriarchal process, extremely patriarchal process, um, very harmful process, very spiritually abusive process, um, very difficult for me both uh, personally, spiritually, and also professionally. And so um, it's it's kind of this gauntlet that comes down that's just, you know, it doesn't really matter what authority – I may have had as a sexual health professional, the authority of patriarchal leaders in a religious community are going to trump and, you know, anything else. Um, and especially coming from a female voice, it's just not going to be seen as a valid, uh, conflict. <laughs> it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not a fair fight. <laughs> so, so that in a nutshell is kind of my, my story. I, I recently also at the same time was going through a divorce so that's been a painful uh, chapter of my life. And um, and not that I want to speak a lot about my ex-husband because um, he has his own stories to tell about, of course, our relationship. But I think we would both be in agreement that um, a lot of the patriarchal ideas and um, patterns that we were taught about relational sexuality, relational marriage, and relational gender roles played a large role in the demise of um, our relationship and how we can see from the very beginning, there were foundational problems because we were not taught um, good skills and being able to come together um, as very different with very different backgrounds, especially from a sexual perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Natasha. And I have to say how, how, really grief stricken I was about your excommunication. And especially when I read the article that Jody England Hansen wrote about the whole process. And I think my, my jaw like physically dropped reading about it. It was worse than I could have imagined the way you were treated, I thought was appalling. And I'm so sorry that that happened to you. Thank you. And yes, it was appalling. And it wasn't just me. Because the the woman you mentioned, Jody England Hansen, was one of the witnesses that came to uh, kind of witness on my behalf with about five other women, all who were uh, treated very, very, yeah, appalling is a good word, mm-hmm. uh, because they were locked out of the building, not allowed to use the bathroom, were dismissed in a way that was very upsetting once things were going in a direction where they were not going to meet with me after all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. What? I don't remember the publication, if lis- listeners are interested in reading about it, because I thought it was a really telling article that um, was emblematic of a lot of the problems of patriarchy. Was it published in 
It was originally published in the Washington Post. Okay. And there were a lot of other articles that did a great job of kind of coming at the issue from different lens. Um, The Salt Lake Tribune also. And there was another article that really did a good job. I'm trying to remember. Plus, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts on it. Um, There has been a lot of media attention if people are interested in just Googling it. (laughs) And yeah, you can Google it. And we'll also... Um, provide some links on our social media afterwards if listeners are interested in more. Well, thanks for that introduction, Natasha. And it really, I mean, listeners will be able to hear why you are such a perfect reading partner and bring so much experience and wisdom to this text that we're going to be talking about today. So um, just again, just thrilled to have you here and so excited to hear your insights with all the, uh, the wisdom that you bring to it. So before we start discussing the book, I'll just read a very short bio of the author, Peggy Orenstein, and I'll just read a little bit about her and what led her to write this text. Peggy Orenstein was born in 1961 in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She earned her bachelor's degree from Oberlin College in 1983, and she began her career in New York City as an associate editor at Esquire magazine. After that, she served as editor of multiple other publications before moving to San Francisco to become the managing editor of Mother Jones. She left that post to write full-time in 1991. Orenstein lives in the San Francisco Bay Area, my hometown, with her husband and their daughter. She is the author of many books, including Cinderella Ate My Daughter, Girls and Sex, which we'll be discussing today, of course. And then her newest book is Boys and Sex, which I will be reading soon as well. Orenstein has been a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Afar, and has also written for the LA Times, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, and she's contributed commentaries to NPR's All Things Considered. And she's been featured on many television shows and on NPR's Fresh Air and the PBS NewsHour. And her TED Talk, What Young Women Believe About Their Own Sexual Pleasure, has been viewed over 5 million times. So let's dig in on some of these topics, Natasha. And uh, we've both read the book multiple times, actually. And for this episode, I I chose some passages that I thought were really important. And I'll ask you what you thought of them. And most of my reading partners would have murdered me if I had asked them to just answer questions on the fly (laughs) without any preparation. But because you're a professional sex therapist and because you've read this book so many times, you told me that you were comfortable with this format and you'd rather have me read the passages of the book and just ask you questions about them. So that's how we'll structure today's episode. It's a little bit different from past episode, but just want listeners to know, Natasha cleared this. I'm not putting her on the spot and making her do all the work without her saying that's what she wanted. So Sounds good. Okay. So I identified six different themes. So we'll go through them fairly quickly. I'll read a couple of passages from the book on each of these themes, and then I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So the first theme is the shame of being female. And really, the most memorable part of Peggy Orenstein's TED Talk for me, which I listened to years and years ago before I read the book, was I remember that she said that girls felt that their parts were both sacred and icky. And when I heard that, I was like, yep, that's exactly (laughs) like the girls in my life. And that's like the message that I internalized for sure was both sacred and icky. So 
um, from the book, Orenstein writes, quote, women's feelings about their genitals have been directly linked to their enjoyment of sex. College women in one study who were uncomfortable with their genitalia were not only less sexually satisfied and had fewer orgasms than others, but were more likely to engage in risky behavior. So how young girls feel about down there matters. It matters a lot. End of quote. Okay, so have you seen this in your in your practice, Natasha? And if so, how do you counsel women who want to rehabilitate their relationship with their sexual organs and their own bodies? Yes, I have absolutely seen this in my practice. And it's interesting because I was just reached out to um, just a few weeks ago by the author of The Guide to Getting It On. His name is Paul Joanitis. I think I'm saying that correct, Dr. Paul Joanitis. He's working on another edition of this book and wanted to do more research exactly on this topic of how females feel about their genitalia. And so he asked me to send out, you know, the survey to my, so, you know, through my social media circles, et cetera. And I did. And about a, it only took about a week to hear back from him again. <laughs> he said, boy, I think there are a lot of people that you are reaching because all of a sudden my sample is changing dramatically. Really? He said that, uh, you know, a lot of the people he samples, which is also a lot of the people that Peggy Ornstein samples, are college-age people, you mm-hmm. know, because that's where a lot of the research around sexuality happens, around a lot of things happen mm-hmm. <laughs> in universities, with university populations. Um, and all of a sudden, he was getting a very different type of sample from conservative, middle age women in particular who were writing in about these feelings. And he said that it was uh, really telling, really um, kind of stopped him in his tracks about Mm. how much uh, distaste and um, problems about how people felt about their, their vulvas, their vaginas, their clitorises, their labia in particular, And he said exactly the same thing, that this is so important because there is this correlation between not having as many orgasms, not having as much sexual pleasure when you don't feel good about how you present. Now, you know, when you think about that, that makes kind of common sense, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. if you don't like any aspect of your body, it might really impact the way that you show up sexually because sexuality in in a lot of ways is a, is a body experience and you're presenting your body and you're having an experience with your body. Um, And because we as women have had so much of our value historically driven by the presentation of how we look and how we are and, and this kind of sweet spot of, of being sexy, but not too sexy, right? Mm -hmm. Being attractive, but being able to still be taken home to mom. Uh, So this kind of middle space that is very difficult to conceptualize and to measure how sexy is too sexy, how demure is too demure. What does it mean to be ladylike? You know, what does it mean to be attractive? What does it mean to look the right way or to present in a way that is sexual enough? So all of this 
performance anxiety that I believe starts very much with what your body looks like and all these messages that female bodies in particular receive about their bodies having to look a certain way absolutely interfere with sexual pleasure Mm -hmm. and just being able to be present with your body and being mindful with your body, which is where we know that for the most part, sexual pleasure resides in a mindful space. Mm -hmm. I thought too, as I was just thinking about those two, they're kind of opposite concepts, sacred and icky, but both of them alienate you from the thing, right? Like, so if it's sacred, it's like, oh, well, I can't think about it. I can't look at it. I can't, certainly can't touch it. I can't even talk about it because it's quote unquote sacred, right? But then on the, and we get that message from religion mostly, but it's just part of the culture, even if people aren't religious. I think that's still kind of a holdover from past religious culture, especially in the United States where we're so prude. (laughs) But then, um, but then the ickiness too of like, of the messages that we get and and Orenstein quotes, like celebrity men that talk really disparagingly and kind of disgustedly about vaginas and whatever. And so girls listen to that or they read that and then they think, oh, it's gross. And that causes, you know, a dissociation from it too, to not want to think about it or like to feel embarrassed of it. So I thought it's like opposite things and both have the same effect and it's a double whammy, I feel like. So... Yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right that we have an inheritance for, from our puritanical background that affects mm-hmm. us all still, whether we consider ourselves currently religious or not. Mm-hmm. These are, you know, millennia old messages. And it's the classic Madonna whore complex, right? On the one hand, you've got the Madonna who becomes a mother through an asexual way, which mm-hmm. is impossible for the rest of us to even... You know, we mm-hmm. can't, we can't, uh, we can't meet that standard. And then of course, you know, the, the whore, which is oftentimes in Christianity depicted by Eve, you know, the, the one who fell and led all men astray by her seductress ways, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's this very interesting dichotomy between purity and fragility and protection of females while at the same time, the scary enticing can ruin all of humanity type of power that females have, right? Mm-hmm. So this um, is very problematic for both men and women mm-hmm. <laughs> in regards to how we uh, approach, have approached female bodies for you know centuries. And I think too that um, you're absolutely right. Sacred, oftentimes, it's not just you know that you're not able to talk about it. It's that sacred typically has a godly connotation, Mm -hmm. a spiritual connotation. And most of us, when we think about spiritual godly things, it's not like sex. (laughs) You think about halos and angels and heavens and, you know, things that are white and pristine. And sex is something that's much more animalistic, you know, and much more... um, base and, you know, sticky and messy and lovely and juicy and, you know, a lot of different things that are not uh, what you would think of in kind of like a church setting, right? Sitting in the pews. And so then icky then comes with it all of this um, heritage of 
again, being um, problematic, being dirty. You're absolutely right that most of the, the most of the slang language for the female genitalia are very crass, are usually very negative, usually have connotations of odor or dirt or cringiness that is associated with it. Even though when you talk to most men, they love vaginas, mm-hmm. heterosexual men. Mm-hmm. Most heterosexual men love vaginas, love vulvas, love offering oral sex, um, love pleasuring their wives, you know, really enjoy the female genitalia of their partners. Uh, and yet I think, you know, females are very much impacted by this early developmental stage of hearing all of this language and being very prone to, um, how internalized that can become as mm-hmm. far as not enjoying themselves. What's really interesting is that uh, there's been a huge rise in what's called vulvoplasty in, mm-hmm. in regards to, you know, plastic surgery, because so many people who own vaginas and vulvas are not happy with how they look. And there's been several projects to try to help with that. There's this, um, vagina wall, although it's really incorrectly named because it should be the vulva wall. (laughs) But there was this artist who did, you know, plaster kind of um, sculptures of female genitalia of of women who were consensual to do that and put them up on the wall. And there was like maybe 50 different vulvas up there. And they did this experiment where they took um, people who were planning on having a uh, surgery through that display And I believe like 60 to 70% opted out of their surgery Mm. after seeing the wide variety and diversity of how female labia looks. Yeah. Uh, That was really powerful. So again, normalizing, you know, the female body and understanding the diversity of genitalia and how there can be many beautiful ways to present. As far as how do we work with women in this in this state, um, it's like a lot of body image, you know, type of work. A lot of, I think the first step is just understanding the, the inner self dialogue, um, choosing different reframes, um, a very classic, uh, sex therapy exercise is the mirror exercise. Uh, many, many females still have not looked at their own genitalia. So that's something that I, encourage women in my practice to do. Take a look at yourself. Look at how you you present. Notice your feelings as you look at yourself. Uh, try to be non-judgmental about whatever comes up, either positive, neutral, or negative uh, feelings in regards to that exercise. And then it's, it's really a, a matter of practicing different self-dialogue, different mantras, and getting to a place of self-love in many aspects of our body, not just our genitalia. So, yeah. Fabulous. Thanks, Natasha. Okay. Second theme is sexuality versus sexualization. And you touched on this just a little bit already in terms of girls being overly aware of how we're presenting rather than being in our bodies. But I'll, I'll read a quote from the book. So in this part, Orenstein is talking about how young girls, like really little girls, um, are, are dressing very sexually. And I really related to this 
part because of some dance recitals that I've been to where girls are dressed in a way that I don't know is age appropriate for seven year olds. Um, so Orenstein says, quote, no one is trying to convince 11 year old boys to wear itty bitty booty shorts or bare their bellies in the middle of winter. As concerned as I am about the policing of girls' sexuality through clothing, I also worry about the incessant drumbeat of self-objectification, the pressure on young women to reduce their worth to their bodies and to see those bodies as a collection of parts that exist for others' pleasure, to continuously monitor their appearance, to perform rather than to feel sensuality. And that's the end of that quote, but I want to say one one more sentence that is in a different part of the book on the same topic. She says, quote, when little girls play at sexy before they even understand the word, they learn that sex is a performance rather than a felt experience, end quote. So I'd love it if you could talk about that concept, Natasha, too, that sex is a performance rather than a felt experience. Yes, this is really at the heart of, I think, most sexual dissatisfaction that isn't about, you know, an actual dysfunction in your body. Uh, Most psychological dysfunction, I guess, right, is that we are so caught up in the performance of showing up correctly that we can't make space or room for our own lived experience. And what was most shocking to me when I read this book years ago now uh, is that she was doing so much of her research with the younger generation, you know, college age and high school age girls and women. And I was hoping (laughs) that we had made more progress than this. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think she was hoping that too. And uh, these were women who were very empowered in most other areas of their lives, very empowered in their ideas about their careers, very empowered about their ideas about managing finances, very empowered even in many areas in regards to gender roles and how they want to show up in a relationship with uh, specifically heterosexual partners Uh, in ways that are more equitable and where they share domestic chores and things of that nature. And yet when it came to the bedroom and their sex lives, they were presenting in ways that mirror a lot of what we would consider 1950s uh, kind of female sexuality of being, you know, kind of more service centered, being um, a a toy or a, a trophy or an object of pleasure for the male gaze, pleasure, and body, right? So that is really concerning. I think that it's very normal, of course, for all children to copy adults, Mm. you know? So that's true, not just in what kids are wearing, but, you know, there's lots of times where you see four or five-year-old kids pretending to kiss because they saw mommy and daddy kiss, right? Or they Mm. may um, have little crushes because they see kind of love stories that are happening even like on Disney films or whatever. Right. And so they, it's not abnormal for kids to start playing and being creative around what we might consider sexual themes, Mm -hmm. um, including how they dance and move their little bodies and copy and mimic adults. So there is a part of that that I just want to normalize and not Mm. see that as all bad, well, at the same time, I don't think we're, that we're doing our kids a lot of service when we continue 
to role model a lot of our own performance anxieties. You know, how many times are we as adults uh, showing our kids that we are not happy with our bodies or that we need to present a certain way in order to be considered attractive? And um, and it's not, you know, I, I do think that the media hits on girls at a much higher frequency, but we are seeing like eating disorders raise up for boys um, and other concerns in regards to body policing for young boys as well, Hmm. because I think we do this to both genders, you know, both genders in a sense have this objectification about how they're supposed to present sexually. Mm -hmm. That's true. In very problematic ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. On this topic, I actually had two more quotes that I wanted to read really quickly. Orenstein says, quote, If the script handed down by our hypersexualized culture expanded the vision of sexy to include a broad range of physical size and ability, skin shade, gender identity, sexual preference, age, if it taught girls that how their bodies feel to them is more important than how they look to others, if it reminded them that neither value nor empowerment are contingent on the size of their boobs, belly, or ass, if it emphasized that they are entitled to ethical, reciprocal, mutually pleasurable sexual encounters, then maybe, maybe I'd embrace it. The body as product, however, is not the same as the body as subject, nor is learning to be sexually desirable the same as exploring your own desire, your wants, your needs, your capacity for joy, for passion, for intimacy, for ecstasy. It's not surprising that girls feel powerful when they feel hot. It's presented to them over and over as a precondition for success in any realm. But the truth is that hot refracts sexuality through a dehumanized prism, regardless of who is in control. Hot demands that certain women project perpetual sexual availability while denying others any sexuality at all. Hot tells girls that appearing sexually confident is more important than possessing knowledge of their own bodies. Because of that, as often as not, that confidence that hot confers comes off with their clothes. End quote. I just thought that was really illuminating for me. And I just pictured, I think I've said this before on an episode when we were talking about the beauty myth, but it's like, yeah, of course it feels empowering to have people's approval and especially in a patriarchal society to have the approval of men you know who are setting up the game for them saying the hottest one wins so the girl who's Mm -hmm. like i'm the hottest i'm the hottest and they're like yes you're the hottest of course you feel empowered but she goes on later to say and this is the last one i'll share but on, on this topic she says quote a bay area high school senior asked me Isn't there a difference between dressing slutty because you don't feel good about yourself and you want validation and dressing slutty because you do feel good about yourself and you know you don't need validation? Could be, I replied. Explain how you know which is which. I can't, she said after a moment. My whole life is an attempt to figure out what, in the core of myself, I actually like versus what I want to hear from other people or wanting to look a certain way to get attention. And part of me feels cheated out of my own well-being because of that. End quote. I think that is the passage I remember most from the book is when she, this high school senior is like, wait a second. (laughs) There's a difference between slutty 
to get other people's approval. And, you know, she's using the word slutty, quote unquote, slutty, because I feel confident. And Orenstein says, how do you know which is which? And she's like, I guess I don't. It's really hard, actually. I've thought yeah. about that in my own self. Like, how do I know? Even even if you don't say slutty, even if you say, like, beautiful, how do I know if I'm just trying to get the approval of others, especially men? Again, because this is, you know, we're looking at this through the patriarchal lens, but, like, how much of this is because I'm trying to, to be attractive to men, for example? Yeah, no, it is. It is very, good. these are very complicated concepts. Um mm-hmm. I mean, I've had this thought even about every time I put on lipstick, you know, yeah. who am I putting on lipstick for? Am I putting on lipstick for myself? Am I putting on lipstick for other women? Am I looking, you know, am I putting on lipstick for men who I might be attracted to? I mean, and I think it's a complexity of a lot of those things. I don't know that any of us will ever escape uh, the need for some level of social validation in any area of our lives because we're social creatures, right? Mm-hmm. So I do want to normalize that a little bit. Most of us do want um, to be validated, to be praised, to be thought of as special or as unique or as, um, you know, something, someone of value in some way or another. I think where we can make a difference um, as adults is to start watching what we praise young children and adolescents for. And as I have become more aware of this, it has been shocking even to myself how natural it is for me to go first to a physical attribute with my nieces or young girls that I come across versus an aspect of their personality or a strength or an accomplishment. And very few times am I uh, geared towards giving my nephews a compliment about how they look or how their bodies present. So those are little changes that all of us can start really being taking mindful note of, and we can make a difference in in that regard. When people show up in my office, specifically those who present as female who have some of these questions, I do try to normalize it. And I do say that you know if something makes you feel sensual or sexual or sexy, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a good feminist or that you are not a good, mm-hmm. you know, um, that, that somehow you've got to reject all of those aspects that have been culturally imposed upon you because there's no complete way to divorce yourself from an entire upbringing and from all of the messages that we have received. And it is in some of those scripts and narratives that we actually find a lot of pleasure. Mm. And so instead of, So actually, I do think that this is a good question to be thinking about, which is which, because if you can think of kind of traditional classic ways that we sexually objectify as ways that do empower you or that you enjoy or that you can role play or that you can have fun or be playful with in your own sexual life, I would say embrace those. But it is when they're leaving you feeling less than or minimized or that you can't measure up that you really do want to challenge some of those scripts and find new ways to present and be in a in in your own sexuality, sensuality, your body, etc. Hmm. Fabulous. That's so great. And I mean, just this is so complex because as you were saying in this book specifically, Orenstein was um 
really dismayed to find the number of girls like you already mentioned that were empowered you would think would be more empowered but then they'd talk about like giving guys blowjobs over and over and should say how did you feel about that and they said oh I hate it I hate it every time I never want to do it and she says like well does he you know give you oral sex no no I would never let so it, it they're they're letting themselves really be used and so yeah, it's so much like you just like you just said, so much depends on your intention, on your attitude and how you feel internally, not just the behavior, right? Well, so. that yeah, is it okay if I expand yeah. on what you just said? So, I yeah. mean, that gets us to a whole nother theme, which is really the entitlement to pleasure. And this is where I think there is really a historical inheritance that we need to challenge at every single step of the way, both as we're raising girls and boys, because the historical precedence is that boys have entitlement to pleasure and to good sex. That just kind of comes with the history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not necessarily saying that that means all boys know how to have good sex or know how to advocate for themselves sexually, but they have a huge privileged um, advantage. Whereas, you know, girls are usually raised to be caretakers, comforters, and are not taught a whole lot about their entitlement to pleasure. And so therefore, you're absolutely right. They don't know how to advocate for themselves I think in her book, she was talking about, well, actually, this comes from her uh, boys book, that boys are fairly comfortable saying things like, well, I can do that for myself. Like, why are boys so interested in blowjobs versus handjobs? Well, because I can do, I can give myself a handjob. <laughs> it's harder to give myself a blowjob, right? Unless I'm super flexible. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, sorry, I went there. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're they're interested in that and they're and they're comfortable advocating for that and saying, hey, this is something I'd like. And as you're saying as you are as you're already reporting, girls are much less comfortable saying, hey, this is what I want out of this. Mm -hmm. And so the people who do best in sexual negotiations are gay men because they're both very good at basically right from the get-go saying, hey, what are you into? What turns you on? What are you interested in? How do you want to go about this? And they're negotiating that from a very early stage in their sexual uh, compromising together. They're, they're slightly better than lesbian women. They're next. Lesbian women are the next category of being good at this. And heterosexual couples are the worst, right? Mm -hmm. And so because I think of this kind of patriarchal dynamic that we still have a lot of, you know, that, that still has a lot of claws into our, our um, subconscious history. So that is something that, again, we can be talking to girls about. Interesting. Okay, next topic is modesty. So... This is kind of a short one. I'll just read two quick quotes from the book. Quote, enforcing modesty is considered a way both to protect and contain young women's sexuality, and they, by association, are charged with controlling young men's. And then the next quote on this topic of modesty is kind of in the context of talking about sexual harassment at school and the issue of girls needing to cover up 
because if they don't cover up their bodies, then they'll be distracting to the boys and then the boys will be tempted and then they'll act, you know, in sexual ways. But really, it's the girl's fault because she's creating these sexual thoughts in the boy. So Orenstein writes, quote, not all boys engage in such behavior, not by a long shot. And many young men are girls' staunchest allies. However, every girl I spoke with, every single girl, regardless of her class, ethnicity, or sexual orientation, regardless of what she wore, regardless of her appearance, has been harassed in middle school, high school, college, or often all three. Who then is truly at risk of being distracted at school? End quote. So thoughts on that dynamic and on modesty, Natasha? Yeah, the modesty rhetoric is obviously very problematic. It's been problematic for a long time and leads to what's typically talked about as rape culture, right? And this infiltrates our legal system, our political system. It's definitely infiltrated in our religious systems. And it is this idea that females are, in a sense, gatekeepers of sexuality. And it's fascinating because when you really look at the data, um, there's no larger level of rape or sexual assault when people are dressed in less robed ways than in more robed ways. In fact, Mm -hmm. a lot of sexual assault and sexual crime is happening in highly conservative cultures and are happening at home, you know, in, in, in the, in the, you know, in the corners of our own communities. So it is this very interesting dynamic of controlling uh, women's sexuality, women's bodies, um, and making them responsible at the same time for male arousal, male ideas, male sexuality. What I, what I do want to complicate here a little bit is I would be willing to bet that every boy I would speak to, regardless of many of these things as well, would also have a story of harassment We may not see it as that because typically I think boy to girl sexual harassment has to do with a boy saying something about her body, something about her sexuality, something inappropriate, right? In regards to a boundary being crossed there. However, most boys are bullied by other boys in regards to their, their bodies, penis size, muscle size, whether or not you present as a nerd or a certain social class or Mm. um, have social status in the school. Mm -hmm. And girls are oftentimes also very cruel to boys in regards to sexual comments, but because they may not be a sexual innuendo and instead may just be an attack on the body per se, again, how they look or how they present, it's not necessarily always seen as sexual harassment. It's not Mm. typically seen as sexual harassment, but it is still body shaming or sex shaming. Um, So in general, boys and girls can be quite cruel to each other in middle school in particular, when all of this kind of sexual angst is starting to develop and can continue obviously to high school and college. Hmm. I'm so glad you pointed that out, Natasha. What a great point. Thank you for that. Okay. Two more. Women don't want to hurt feelings or offend, so they get pressured to go along with things that they don't want to do. 
that's the next theme. So Orenstein talks with, again, we've, we've said she, she's talking mainly with teenage girls, high school girls, college women. And like I said a little bit earlier, she's finding this phenomenon where girls are giving guys oral sex all the time, quote unquote, so the guy won't feel bad or be disappointed if the girl doesn't want to have sexual intercourse, then she's like, okay, okay, well, I'll make you feel better and I'll give you a blowjob. And she even talks about, there's this, I would say the other passage from the book that is seared into my mind is this one story about a rape victim. And well, she talks about multiple rape victims. Actually, these girls are telling her their stories and they're you know, they talk about being held down, they're struggling, but they can't bring themselves to actually say the word no because they don't want to offend this guy or damage the relationship. And then this one that is seared into my mind is where the girl got up. She was totally raped. She actually was struggling and did say no, but she had felt so paralyzed. And then as she was leaving, she just walked out of his apartment, turned around and said, thanks, I had fun. And then shut the door. And she she told Peggy Orenstein this. And she's like, I don't know why I said that. I said, thanks. I had fun. And just this concept of having been so conditioned to not hurt feelings that they couldn't speak their real, their real feelings, even in these really horrific circumstances. So here's a quote. Quote, for years, psychologists have warned that girls learn to suppress their own feelings in order to avoid conflict, to preserve the peace in friendships and romantic partnerships. Whether they hoped to attract a boy's interest, sustain it, or placate him, it seemed their partner's happiness was their main concern. End quote. And then one more quickly. She says, quote, nearly all the girls I interviewed were bright, assertive, ambitious, If I had been interviewing them about their professional dreams or their attitudes toward leadership or their willingness to compete with boys in the classroom, I might have walked away inspired. One girl summed it up by saying, I guess no one ever told me that the strong female image also applies to sex. And this kind of reminded me of our episode on sexual politics by Kate Millett, where Millett says that there are implications of female subordination not only on Capitol Hill, not only in the boardroom, but also in the bedroom, and even in marriages that in other ways might be really happy, but in the bedroom and in physical acts, there's still subordination going on. And a lot of times it's because the girl has been so trained to just please, the, the woman has been so trained to please the man. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so this is obviously a big problem in regards to gender roles, right? And how we typically raise girls to be polite and friendly and uh, comforters and peacemakers and help meets all these terms. And the research also shows that, yeah, it's not just in the sex realm, um, women who are assertive or use language very similar to that of men in business meetings, et cetera, will be called things like bitchy or aggressive or problematic when men who exhibit very similar patterns of behavior are seen as leaders and assertive and competitive in, in positive ways. You know, they're seen as positive. So that is still, you know, kind of a, a cultural you know, war that we're fighting in regards to sexism. 
uh, I think we're doing better in the boardrooms and job situations than we are in the bedroom for sure. Uh, because the, the fragility of sexual egos is high. <laughs> mm. <laughs> One, because we, we don't know how to talk about sex. So whether you're raised as a boy, whether you're raised as a girl, and even for those who are gender non-binary and would consider themselves you know, not necessarily falling into that polarization of how we typically think of gender, we're affected by these ideas of gender roles and what role we're supposed to play in a relationship. So that's an ongoing battle. But if you don't know how to talk about sex and you're worried that you're going to hurt each other's feelings, and in particular, those who have been raised as girls are typically more concerned about that just because of the socialization, of course, that's going to play a role. And it's why we see a lot of duty sex and otherwise very healthy, good marriages. It's why we see a lot of the still the orgasm gap that we see between females and males. So Dr. Lori Mintz is the one who talks about that. That's a great book to read, Being Cliterate by Dr. Lori Mintz. And um, it's also why there can be less advocacy for your own pleasure. And uh, especially because typically arousal and orgasm for a female body requires something different than for a male body. And it usually requires what is called foreplay, although Dr. Lori Mintz calls it sex. Because <laughs> 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 it's like, you don't, you, you know, we, we think of foreplay as like the thing leading to penis and vagina sex, right? But she's like, wait a minute, what about all the fun things that we're doing prior to penis and vagina sex? And you don't even need penis and vagina intercourse to have good sex, which is very true, right? So lesbians are having great sex without any penises involved. So <laughs> there's lots of ways to, um, to advocate for your sexuality, but that's not necessarily, again, something that we learn, something that we advocate, something that we teach both, um, you know, people with vaginas and people with penises to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk a little bit differently about the rape perspective and sexual assault perspective, because although I do agree that these themes play a role in that, we are now getting into a very different fight, flight, freeze, fawn response, which is what happens when people are alert and in danger. So to freeze when you are powerless or when you are about to be damaged or harmed, and to fawn, so I'll explain that in a little bit, are actually very normal self-protective ways to get through an event in survival fashion. Mm. So I'm not sure I totally see these completely correlated. Because regardless of whether or not a woman is concerned about not hurting a man's feelings, I am guessing that that's typically a story she's telling herself afterwards, trying to explain why she acted in the way that she acted. And she's probably shaming herself for not having said no, for not having fought harder, for saying something like, thanks, I had fun, for not knowing what to do in that moment. And and I think it's very, very important for sexual assault victims, whether male or female, to understand that freezing is actually self-protective. 
fawning is self-protective. Fawning is more that idea of being flirtatious or kind of getting through the moment so that people stay happy and okay with you. And you're kind of playing along, even though you Mm -hmm. are alert and in danger and trying to get the hell out of there. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't really realize that that's what you're doing, that's what you're doing. So So there's something, so there's something very instinctual and actually very smart and Mm -hmm. wise about your instincts that then later, of course, don't make sense to you. And that can Mm. leave you feeling responsible or shamed or, um, you know, problematic. And in fact, your body may even respond in this way. Your body may respond with an orgasm. Your body may respond with arousal. You know, you may have gotten lubricated. You may have felt even some level of physiological arousal that you can't explain in a situation where you were confused or scared or um, wanting to have the situation stop. So Mm -hmm. I just want to complicate that a little bit and make sure that victims understand that uh, these are very normal ways for your body and mind to go into uh, self-protection mode to help you stay alive. And if you stayed alive, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. You, win. you win. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, Natasha. That was so important. Thank you. Okay. Last theme from the book is purity culture. So the first thing I want to mention here is something I was thinking just today is that patriarchal purity culture and I'm not telling you this, Natasha, you're the expert here, but just for listeners, here's what I was thinking. I was thinking how patriarchal purity culture doesn't just harm women. And I was thinking about how Conan O'Brien one time, I saw him on his show, I think, saying that to grow up Catholic means feeling bad every time you have sex. (laughs) And the audience laughed when he said that, but you could tell it wasn't a joke, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. the kernel of truth in that joke was like, it just, it wasn't even a joke. And then the other thing that I thought about was that episode of This American Life with Elna Baker. And the episode is called But That's What Happened. And Elna Baker talks about discussing her sexual feelings and experiences and acts as a teenager with men, older men in suits in uh, in the bishop's office in Mormon churches. And she did this so many times throughout her life that now even as an adult, she feels like There's a man in a suit sitting looking over her shoulder whenever she does anything sexual. And she's married now, and that man in a suit is still there. So I know so many people who can relate to that. And I was just thinking how even if each individual man, each individual bishop or whatever, each patriarch in the church was a well-meaning, really nice man just doing what he was told to do was the, you know, it was the right thing to do. Nevertheless, the harm is done, and the presence of that symbolic man in a suit in the bedroom has destroyed the lives, or has destroyed the sex lives of so, so, so many people. Hopefully not permanently, which is why you do what you do, right, Natasha? Right, right, yes. We <laughs> can, we can address this. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and Orenstein doesn't cover Mormonism. Instead, she takes on evangelical Christian purity culture. And she describes how she, as a journalist, she um, went to a purity ball. And so she describes, you know, what a purity ball is and, and kind of lays the 
the framework of, of this purity culture. She says, the world's first purity ball was organized in 1998 in Colorado Springs, Colorado, by a pastor named Randy Wilson. As the father of seven children, five of them girls, Wilson believed it was his duty to protect his daughter's virginity. So these events, these purity balls, are an outgrowth of a larger movement called True Love Waits, which was a movement launched by the Southern Baptist Convention in the mid-1990s. And by 2004, more than 2.5 million teenagers had pledged that they would wait until marriage. That's one in six American girls. And so Orenstein goes to a purity ball, which is like a giant daddy-daughter dance where the daughters pledge their sexual purity. And they're, you know, dressed in, in white dresses and they dance with their dads. And she's talking with the dads and the daughters. And one of the, da- one of the dads tells her, quote, if someone put a gun to my daughter's head every day and said, if you lose your purity, I'll shoot you, I guarantee she wouldn't lose her purity. It's all about choice. End quote. And then there's this next passage is kind of long, Natasha. Do you mind reading that one? Sure. Three quarters of white evangelical teens disapprove of premarital sex, as opposed to half of mainline Protestants and a quarter of Jews. Evangelical virgins, incidentally, are also the least likely to imagine that sex will feel good. Despite that, evangelicals are the most sexually active of those groups. They lose their virginity younger at an average age of 16 and are less likely to protect against pregnancy or disease, perhaps due to a lack of education or perhaps because preparing for intercourse would make their fall from grace appear premeditated. Ding, ding, ding. Sorry. Okay. They, <laughs> they remain less likely to use contraception and drastically less likely to protect against disease. Pledgers have the same rates of STDs and pregnancy as the general population. She goes on to say, also, a 2014 study of young evangelical Christian men offered a glimpse into the post-abstinent marriage bed. It turned out the men couldn't shake the idea that sex was beastly after the prohibition against it was lifted. They were surprised to find themselves still beset by temptation, pornography, masturbation, other women. What's more, back when they were single, they had the support of other abstinent men, Once wed, they found that talking to friends about sexual problems was considered a betrayal of one's wife, and they had no idea how to communicate with their spouses directly. A young woman who had taken a virginity pledge in the Baptist church at age 10 told a similar story on the website, XO Jane. After marriage, she couldn't let go of the shame and guilt that had been drummed into her. Quote, sex felt dirty and wrong and sinful, even though I was married and it was supposed to be okay now, end quote, she wrote. Quote, sometimes I cried myself to sleep because I wanted to like sex because it wasn't fair. I had done everything right. I took the pledge and stayed true to it. Where was the blessed marriage I was promised, end quote. Oh, welcome to my sex therapy practice. That's what I wondered. I thought that might be the case. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know, when you spend all of the developmental years teaching sex, teaching about sexuality through a fear-based paradigm and a consequence-based paradigm, that does not get undone in one day when all of a sudden you say, I do, and fall into a honeymoon bed together. (laughs) Not to mention 
the fact that this whole approach assumes and treats people as if there has been no sexual activity prior to marriage. So either way, there's a lot of shame, miseducation, and uh, inability to communicate and get information about sex. If you've had sex prior to marriage in, in, the, in these kinds of cultures, you often feel like damaged goods. You often are treated like damaged goods by other members of the society. You may not have as many options for marriage or for partnership. You may find yourself in less than ideal partnerships or feel deserving of a less than ideal partnership. I can't tell you how many um, women I've talked to in particular that come uh, from domestic violence situations where in a sense, they, they will tell me where well, I, I knew that I wasn't really marrying a great person, but I didn't feel like I really deserved anything better than that. Hmm. So how internalized this becomes, you know, that the worth, the worth of a person has to do with what has happened between their legs is something that is incredibly problematic. And then of course, for people who do stay true to the pledge and feel like they have um, you know, arrived to the marriage bed in a pure way are usually highly uneducated, do not understand their body's potential for pleasure, do not understand their partner's potential for pleasure. Uh, again, can't undo the messages that sex is scary or painful or messy or problematic or dirty, which is what they've been taught all along up until that point. There's no turn on switch that magically makes it beautiful now. Uh, and even if people feel like it is sacred and special and beautiful, again, those are not terms that really describe what sex is. <laughs> it's not this lovely embrace where you calmly hold each other and mm -hmm. stare into each other's eyes. There's a lot of like movement and thrusting and fluids and moaning and sighing and <laughs> bodily things that you would never expect, like queefing and <laughs> having to go to the bathroom in the middle of an experience. <laughs> and so, you know, it, when that's the only description that you have of the marriage bed is it's something beautiful and sacred will happen. It, it it's highly problematic um, for the people mm -hmm. that don't know what to expect. And we have tons and tons of issues with genital pain, mm -hmm. vaginismus and genital pain run higher uh, in percentage with female bodies that come from religiously conservative communities Again, because there typically is an anxiety around sex, there is an anticipation of pain, there is an anticipation of um, something that's going to happen that is unknown. So what does your body do when it's anticipating pain? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it tightens up, and that mm -hmm. can turn into these involuntary spasms that are happening in your pelvic floor area that you can't control, you don't, you, you're not doing it on purpose. Um, and yet your body does not know how to relax into the natural um, state of being able to surrender and open and lubricate and be aroused, sufficiently aroused for penile penetration and sexual pleasure through that act. Mm -hmm. I, it makes me think of the the just heartbreaking scenes in the Netflix series Unorthodox about the sweet Esty and going into her marriage with absolutely no education. She didn't even know, you know, she never studied 
human anatomy. She didn't know her own body at all. And she just really suffers. And to that show and this quote, both really, I thought, demonstrated how that kind of patriarchal prohibition against even understanding sex harms everybody. Because, I mean, in this quote by Orenstein, too, she talks about the the husband coming to to marriage and sex too mm-hmm. and, and feeling confused and alone and this is wait this isn't what i thought it was going to be and i don't know who to talk to and in unorthodox too you see esty suffers and also yankee her husband and and he ends up losing her because of largely yes. because of this actually it's, yes. it's tragic for everybody not just women absolutely actually. everything we've been talking about is tragic for all people mm-hmm. um even people that we think uh, are, in a sense, benefiting from mm-hmm. a power differential don't really, in the end, benefit from that. Mm-hmm. When you take into account that most people will report wanting good sex and wanting that sex to happen within a relational context where there is love and trust. Mm-hmm. So... None of these things that we've been talking about help males, females, and uh, anybody on the gender binary spectrum have those things Mm -hmm. in a way that is productive, sustainable, and healthy. So all of these dynamics are problematic. I think Mm -hmm. that another issue that I see is that when you go your entire developmental life, seeing your worth through this purity lens that your worth is tied to your virginity. Even when you have only marital sex, that part of your identity is now gone. And so I'll talk to a lot of people saying, I still feel like something is missing about me, even though they waited, you know, even though they only Mm -hmm. had marital sex, it's like there's this whole part of who they identified so strongly as um, in regards to their their identity and not to mention the very problematic aspect of either fathers and or preachers being the gatekeepers of female sexuality completely de-eroticizes sexuality. <laughs> so if, if who you're thinking about is right. God or a father or a priest or a preacher in the bedroom, yeah, you're more than likely not going to find that super arousing unless you're into that. And that's fine too. But <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, I'll never forget the scene in an old movie. One of Julia uh, Roberts first movies called mystic pizza and, and her older sister. I don't remember who she was played by, but she was, she had a fiance and they were about to get married and they were having sex, but right above their bed as he was, you know, like kind of thrusting into her and looking up was this huge crucifix. Right? Yes. <laughs> and, and then he, and he's looking and then he tries to re-engage and look at her, but then he looks back up <laughs> this Jesus on the cross and he finally just gives up. He's like, I can't do this. I can't yeah. have sex with you and be erotically motivated and present with you when there's this third entity in the bedroom, especially one that has this uh, power dynamic over you and who has been such a, um, a, an oppressor of your sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's oppressive. Mm-hmm. It's not protective. Right. Right. 
Like Elna Baker with the bishop interview, too. And the, the dude in the suit's always in the bedroom. Yep. <laughs> like, get him out. Yep. Oh, man. So rewiring all that is yeah. is part of a lot of what we do in sex therapy. And it's it's difficult work. It's challenging work. It's not impossible work. And it's work that I think everybody is deserving of. We're all deserving mm. of pleasure. I love quoting Emily Nagoski, you know, the, the author of Come As You Are, is, is pleasure is the measure. Pleasure mm. is the measure. Mm. And whether you have a female body or a male body or a trans body, um, pleasure is the measure. Hmm. I love it. Well, let's leave it at that, Natasha. That is a perfect way to wrap up the episode. I love I love um, all of your insights and your, your, you would describe it as complicating the conversation. And I learned so much from all of those um, nuances and new ways of seeing things. And also your optimism in, in saying, yeah, it's, it's hard work, but it can be done and new pathways can be formed. And um, I so appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. You are so welcome. I, I am in love with the fact that our brains are neuroplastic and can shift mm. and change. <laughs> and I love that our clitorises and penises have tons of nerve endings to allow for pleasure. <laughs> so I'm just in love with the whole process. So thank you for having me on. Oh, I, I love it. And you are in the right uh you are in the right career and the world is better for it, Natasha. So Thank thanks you. for sharing your gifts with us today. Thank you. And thanks for to you listeners for being with us today. On our next episode of Breaking Down Patriarchy, we will be discussing the book Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story by British science journalist Angela Sini, written in 2017. So if you're interested in the sciences, or even if you're just more of an arts and humanities person, I really recommend this book to everyone. So see if you can grab a copy or put it on your reading list for later. But either way, join us for the discussion of Angela Sini's Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 